songs. And uh, when Jesus says to Peter, I have prayed for thee, not I've prayed for you, like he had prayed for all the apostles, I have prayed for thee. And Jesus had personally prayed for Peter. I, uh, I hope you have some people in your life would never be where they are today were it not for your personal prayers for them. Uh, Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. We are continuing to go through a sequential study of end time events as we work through our lengthy series in Bible doctrine. The word doctrine, remember, just means teaching. And so we have been studying the teachings of the Bible because doctrine is very important to living a stable balanced, and consistent life. Uh, Believers whose faith in Jesus is linked closely to them being moved emotionally will always be less stable and more inconsistent than those whose faith is more closely linked to Bible doctrine. The Apostle John said, Whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. That's 2 John verse 9. Jesus said to the church in Pergamos and Romans, to I have a few things against thee, because thou hast them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. And though it is true that doctrine, like all truth, does divide at times sound Bible doctrine on key issues matters. It matters to Jesus. In fact, he went so far to say that he hated the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. And so please, uh, when you have someone stand up and say, a doctrine doesn't matter, I hope, that that immediately runs a red flag up in your life and you think to yourself, no, nah, that's not right. In fact, anybody who you hear say, the gospel is the only doctrine that matters, at best are telling you half-truth. The gospel is the only doctrine that matters when it comes to whether we're saved or lost, but when it comes to how we live our life and how we follow and walk with God, Bible doctrine matters in many other areas other than the gospel. Uh, We've spent three Sunday evenings now talking about the coming kingdom of God and that kingdom that will follow the future seven-year tribulation. We have been blessed to learn a lot about that kingdom, uh, though there's certainly much more than these basics that we covered together. We've been blessed to learn that Jesus will reign with uh, an iron rod of holiness and righteousness and equity. We learn that when he reigns, that the knowledge of God will be common knowledge and that the earth will return to her fruitfulness like it was before the curse that God placed on the earth as a result of Adam and Eve's fall in the Garden of Eden. We learn that when Christ reigns, there will be true peace among mankind and peace in the animal kingdom as well. It has been very helpful, I think, for all of us to learn what Jesus meant when he taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We rejoiced. Because if you're born again, you're going to get to see that kingdom. And by the way, if you're here tonight and you're not yet born again, my prayer for you is that you would believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and place the simple faith of your heart in him as a savior. We concluded last week after learning what this coming kingdom would be like, we concluded being shocked by how that wonderful kingdom ends. We all want to think better of humanity. 
The fact of the matter is, is that the darkness of man's heart and man's fallen nature will open at the end of that coming kingdom for one final rebellion against God, even under the ideal conditions of Christ's kingdom. And we concluded as we saw God Himself put down that final rebellion. And we closed last week with a simple question. What happens after Christ's kingdom ends in rebellion and Satan is cast in the lake of fire? Now, tonight's message um, is not the kind of message you would hear many places. I hope you understand that the contemporary church movement is not characterized by lies and falsehoods. If you are going to listen to those people and think you're looking for false doctrine, that's not what you're going to find. What it is characterized by is difficult doctrines that they do not discuss. And one of those uh, is going to be our subject tonight. And this is not a difficult truth to understand. Uh, it is a difficult truth to hear, which makes it a difficult truth for me to speak. But it is very clear, and it is important that we understand what happens after God puts down Satan and man's final rebellion. If you're able to stand, if you would stand tonight, please, in honor of the Word of God, the title of my thought is the Great White Throne Judgment. The Great White Throne Judgment. Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. The devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. And I saw a great white throne, him that sat on it from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. There was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every man, according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Thank you. you might be seated. We're warned of several judgments in the Scripture. And the timing, the people or creatures being judged, and the basis of the judgment varies. In fact, there are at least seven judgments that I'm aware of, and we just read about one of those a moment ago. Now, earlier in our series on sound doctrine, we spent some detail on the judgment seat of Christ, the judgment where every believer will stand, not to determine whether we go to heaven or hell. That was determined at the, at the cross by Jesus Christ when He paid for our sins there, but to determine, rather, the way we will be rewarded or not rewarded, as the case may be, in Christ's kingdom and in eternity. We also spent some time, at least a week, talking about the judgment of Gentile believers at the end of the tribulation, those who managed some way to live through those seven years. We spoke about that judgment uh, as well. And certainly both of those judgments will be a fearful thing because the Bible just says it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And we are well aware, we, we talked about it, of the terror of the Lord when His patience finally runs out. And though there are many incredibly fearful scenes described in the Bible, to me, 
the one we just read is the most terrifying of all of them. The great white throne judgment, some people call the final judgment. Notice the time of this judgment is after the devil is cast into the lake of fire in verse 10, and the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and false prophet are, shall be tormented day and night forever. By the way, if you haven't done so already, you ought to circle that word are, A-R-E. 1,000 years after they are cast into the lake of fire, the beast and the false prophet, two men, are still burning in the lake of fire 1,000 years after they were cast in there, and the devil is cast in there with them. That's the time of the great white throne judgment. The scene of the judgment is the great white throne upon which God himself is seated in verse 11, and I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. It is not a denominational head on the throne. It is not a pastor on the throne. It is not a priest or a pope or a president. It is God himself, the God of all creation, the omnipotent creator who is on that throne. Notice everything, and everyone will attempt to flee from the face of him who is seated upon that throne. Now as believers, we think about the face of the Son of God, and I think most of us would say it's a face I long to see. To see the eyes, to see what He looks like, to see the smile, to see what His face looks like in glory. For those of us who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and sincerely follow Him, it is a face we long to see. But others with no faith in Christ understand that when that face becomes visible, it will bring great fear to them because they once plucked his beard. They once spit in his face. They once crowned that same head and face with thorns. They rejected the warm smile and grace of that face. And in that day, even heaven and earth will respond to this moment by fleeing away. Keep your hand there. Go back and do 2 Peter chapter 3. I think as it describes the earth and heaven fleeing away, I think it is describing this moment that Peter referred to when he spoke of God cleansing the earth by fire. And 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 10 says, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, the elements shall melt with fervent heat, and the earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, even though all this is going to happen, we as believers, according to his promise, we look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness." We have spent time talking about the fact that the day of the Lord is not a 24-hour time period like the literal 24-hour time periods that are numbered in Genesis in the account of creation. The day of the Lord is a time period that begins with the sixth seal and the moon turning blood red, and that lasts for those last three and a half years of tribulation, just like the Jewish day begins in darkness, that day of the Lord will begin in darkness and go all the way to the end of the thousand-year reign of Christ. And we learn here that that day of the Lord concludes with this purging 
by fire. But as believers, we're not looking for this purging by fire. We are instead, we read in verse 13, looking for new heavens, and we are looking for a new earth. Now we saw this purging and this filling up and this refurbishing of earth a little bit when we talked about how Christ's kingdom begins. Remember how the water will flow out of God's throne in Jerusalem and it'll flow uh, to the east toward the Mediterranean Sea and it'll flow through the, to the west through uh, the desert there into the Persian Gulf and that everywhere that that living water comes it will be refurbishing and life and refreshment from all the destruction of the kingdom. But this particular purging after Satan is cast into the lake of fire is all designed to prepare the earth for righteousness. See, it is essential that all the works of man and all the effects of man's sin, both on the earth, in the earth, above the earth, and in the skies, will all be dissolved and wash away, and in that sense, flee from the one God who is on that throne. Now, I'm sure that it won't be just the earth and the heaven that will flee away. Understand that in that day, the wicked dead, they will attempt to flee away in great fear of final judgment. Listen, uh, in life, people can run from God to a degree, but they cannot get away in life. And understand in that day, no one will get away either. You see, people attempt to flee from God and the conscience he placed in them but no one can hide from God today. Believers think they can hide from God by staying away from His church and ignoring the Bible, but just because someone refuses to listen to or expose themselves to truth, it does not mean that truth won't catch up to them soon enough. I mean, think about it. When John, who was a righteous, saved man, perhaps the closest of the apostles to Jesus personally, it was John who lied in the bosom of the Lord Jesus Christ on his last night. When John, who was on the Isle of Patmos, persecuted for his faith, when he was there and he saw the resurrected Christ, you remember? He said, I fell at his feet as a dead man. If that is the response to a righteous, by a righteous man like John to the glorified Christ, imagine the fear and terror of the wicked dead who will be there on that, that, on that day. I mean, think about it. Think about the moment. Can you not imagine the smell and smoke of burning sulfur from the lake of fire? From what I understand, the word brimstone means burning sulfur. Can you not imagine the hideous screams of the doomed and the damned as they... Screams are dampened only by the waves of fire against the blackened shore of that horrific lake. Imagine the brightness of the glory of the thrice holy omnipotent creator that will force every eye downward. The brightness of the throne, the brightness of the glory of God, no one would even dare look up to behold its purity and his glory. Notice the participants in this judgment. If you would, please go back to our text are the ones who were dead. In fact, we'll read two verses, and in four, in two short verses, they're described as the dead four times. Verses 12 and 13, And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books, according to their works. 
The sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. I hope you understand the biblical definition of death. In the Bible, death never means ceasing to exist. In the Bible, the word death always means separation. The first death is a separation of the human soul from the body that housed that soul. The second death is a separation of that soul from God in the lake of fire. And we read that definition of the second death for being cast in the lake of fire in verses 14 and 15. Death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. What's the second death? Being cast into the lake of fire. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. By the way, I would be negligent if I did not pause to remind everyone at this point that those who die in their sins today, their soul is immediately separated from their body to open the eyes of their soul in the torment and flames of hell. I want to pause and thank God that the other side of that same coin is that the soul of anybody who dies in Christ immediately when their soul is separated from their body, their soul immediately goes to be with Christ to open their eyes in glory to see the Lord Jesus Christ. What a wonderful thing that'll be. Now the dead at that great white throne, they will be standing there. Notice who it includes. It says at the beginning of verse 12, I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. Remember this morning we talked about how the small and great in heaven will praise God. Here we learn the small and great who were dead and did not die in Christ, they will stand at this judgment. I mean, think about it. No special passes. Uh, today in our world, those who are rich and famous escape man's justice at times. They get expensive lawyers. They know the right people. And they sometimes escape man's justice. There will not only be no free passes for those who are rich, there'll be no free passes given to the poor and obscure who use their poverty and difficulty as an excuse to reject the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, listen, the rich and the poor all meet in the same box, and the rich and the poor all also meet in this judgment if they died in their sins instead of dying in Christ. Notice where these dead come from in verse 13. The sea gave up the dead which were in it. Death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. Now, I think we understand what the sea is and we understand what hell is. They say, where is this place called death that will give up the dead which in it? I don't know. I have no idea what it is. This seems to indicate there is a place called death. If you know what it is, I would love to hear about it. Uh, and if it sounds good, I'll tell everyone. I have no idea what it is. But at that time, those places will no longer exist because they too will be cast into the lake of fire. Now, Jesus spoke about this resurrection of the wicked. Keep your hand there. Go back to John chapter 5. So what are we doing tonight, Brother Wally? We're just having a little Bible study. Just teaching about the doctrine of the great white throne. By the way, just out of curiosity, how many people here, when you got saved, you basically got saved out of fear of judgment or fear of hell? How many people here were saved like that? That's, that's, by the way, that's almost everyone. My hand is up. 
uh, understand that when pulpits are silent about the judgment of God and hell, it drastically affects people getting saved. Listen, you can stand up all day and say, listen, come to Jesus, he loves you. But first and foremost, if someone is not a sinner, they do not seek a savior. Did you hear me? That is a false gospel. The plan of salvation always begins with someone being a guilty sinner. And anybody who begins it anywhere else didn't start in the right place. You say, that's harsh. No, that's the Bible. Notice Jesus warned about this resurrection of damnation, this resurrection of the wicked in John chapter 5, verse 26. He says, for as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself, and hath given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in the which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice. Shall come forth they that have done good under the resurrection of life, they that have done evil under the resurrection of damnation. Now we have studied already the resurrection of the just, the times when God raises the dead, those who died in Christ instead of dying in their sins. Uh, this that we read about, and you can go back there in Revelation chapter 20, is John uh, speaking about and filling in some of the details of what the resurrection of damnation is, the resurrection of the wicked dead. Listen, you and I can't comprehend how God can know where every speck of the human body went after someone died. Remember, those who die in their sins, they go immediately to hell to open their eyes in the fire. Those who die in Christ, uh, they go immediately to heaven and they open their eyes in glory with the Lord Jesus. Uh, and everybody's body goes where it goes. Listen, I mean, have you ever really thought that through about how difficult it is to assemble all that? I mean, suppose you die at sea. Suppose a shark finds you. Suppose that shark lives however long a shark lives and it dies. And it goes sinking down to the bottom. And then a hagfish comes. Hey, listen. God knows where every speck of every human body is. And God is going to resurrect not just the bodies of the just, those who die in Christ. God is going to resurrect the wicked dead, those who die in their sins, and this great white throne judgment is the time when he does that. Now, the oldest of those who will appear at this judgment to determine the level of their condemnation in the lake of fire will be Cain, uh, the Christ-rejecting son of Adam and Eve. I mean, imagine the knowledge of God that Cain sinned against. <laughs> I mean, imagine. In fact, 1 John 3.12 calls him uh, of that wicked one. Cain will be at this great white throne. The newest of those will be those we discussed last week. Do you remember them from 
Revelation 20 and verse 7 through 9 says, And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. And they went up in the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of saints about in the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. We talked about that last week, and the most recent people to be participating at this great white throne judgment will be those who just immediately preceding this event followed Satan who stirred up the rebellion that was already in their heart against God. We have seen the time, we've seen the scene, we've seen the participants at this terrible future moment when Christ's kingdom ends. Notice the results of this judgment affect both people and places. Verses 14 and 15, death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And those are places. Verse 15, and whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. You see, the place we call hell here, where the unbelieving dead will be kept, will be destroyed in the lake of fire. And again, as I said earlier, I don't know where this place called death is. I know what death is, but in these verses, it makes it seem like it's a place. Uh, The people who are not in the Lamb's book of life will be cast into the lake of fire. Uh, The same place we read earlier from verse 10 where the devil was cast. The same place we read earlier where the Antichrist and false prophet will be cast and By that time, we'll have been there for a thousand years. Did you hear me? People cast into the lake of fire. What a sobering and horrific thought. That thought has motivated missionaries, preachers, and faithful witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ of all sorts for 2,000 years. Listen, it is supposed to motivate us. I mean, why else would God put this in here? It is supposed to motivate us. By the way, I actually personally think, I think it's a good thing we don't really grasp the enormity and horror of that moment. I don't think we could take it. I think the only way that you and I will ever be able to stand this this event is the fact that we'll be in a glorified body and God will have changed us to be more like the Lord Jesus Christ, and at that time, we will look at things from God's perspective instead of our own. Now, the basis for this judgment will be the content of some books in heaven. Notice in verse 12, I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened, which is, I'm sorry, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. Notice there's books. And there's a book, that's the book of life. And said, and the dead were judged out of those things which are written in the books. So there are books that record the works of every human being, what we did, what we failed to do. And there is a book that we learn in verse 15 to be the Lamb's book of life, whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Now, I personally believe, and you certainly can disagree with this if you want to take 
the word books literally and believe that there are hundreds of millions of books uh, up there that record everyone's works. I have no issue with that and, and we'll all know someday. I personally believe that every event of our life is somehow recorded in a subconscious part of our brain and apart from our conscious memory. By the way, I, I think that's why when uh, someone has a near-death experience, have you ever heard or read someone talk about their life passing before their eyes? Uh, I, I think everything from, from our life is somewhere recorded in there. Now, if God has it in a literal book, listen, God's more than capable of having a hundred billion books up there. Listen, if man can put all that information on a little silver disc, God has plenty of means of having something literal with all these works. Now, notice the books have the works of people recorded in them. In verse, the end of verse 12, the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. So what's in the books? Their works. By the way, do you remember what Jesus said when he spoke to the seven churches in Asia? There are some things that were unique to each church. There were four things that he said to every church. Do you remember what one of those four were? He said to every church, I know thy works. That's true for us as a church, as Bible Baptist Church. God knows our works. That's true for us as individual believers. God knows our works. Now in that day, people will get what they think they wanted all along. You see, people think they want God to judge them according to their good and bad works. But understand that every individual, when they're judged according to their works, will be found to be lacking and guilty. No one's works can wash away their sins. Only the blood of Jesus can do that. A sinner can either ask God for a free pardon in Christ or demand a fair trial. And understand that if you and I get a fair trial in front of a just and holy God, our works will be found insufficient. Our righteousnesses, the things we do that we call righteous deeds, will be found to be filthy rags because when it had all shaken down, whenever you're honest enough with yourself about any of the good we do, it is always tainted by pride. It is always tainted by selfishness. It is always tainted about what our peers will think about us. And that means none of our righteousness are effective for eternal life. The only hope for guilty sinners before a holy God has always been and will always be God's mercy and God's grace. Amen. Extended through Jesus. Good works after being saved determine the rewards believers will have in the kingdom and eternity. Good works without being saved will determine the just level of torment unbelievers endure in the lake of fire. The book, though, remember books with the works, and the book which contains the name of those who belong to Jesus, verse 15, whosoever was not found in the book of life was cast in the lake of fire. Listen, being in that book is the only hope any human being has for staying out of hell. The final and forever lake of fire. No one gets in that book by being Baptist, that's a work. No one gets in that book by being baptized. That's a work. 
No one gets in that book by having more good than bad in your life. That's a work. No one gets in that book by giving lots of money. That's a work. No one gets in that book. You name the work. No one gets in that book that way. People get their name in that book with a humble, childlike faith in the Lord Jesus. For, for those here and a lot of us here in a church like this, you, you know, we, we're familiar with some theological terms. We're familiar with some Bible doctrines. And, and sometimes I think we can tend to complicate that which God made so simple a child can understand it. To believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. It is at this future moment that Jesus will say to all those at this judgment from Matthew 25, 41, depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Now it's easy when we think about this judgment and, and the horror of, of it all. Uh, listen, uh, this is not some theological thing off in the distance. This is something that affects us personally. It affects our families. It affects our friends. It, it affects so many, many things. It's easy to see why so many pulpits are silent about this future moment because of its horror. In fact, I, I, honestly, I, I shudder as I think about it as it is written. And, and I wish uh, I had the disposition of some of you here where I could just gently and calmly describe this moment instead of uh, I have a much more naturally aggressive and clear disposition that makes me sometimes, uh, you could say, well, that guy's mean. Uh, listen, I wish I could say this to you like the Lord Jesus, who is the perfect combination of gentleness and holiness. I wish I could tell you about this like he could tell you about this, but I'm unable to do so. This moment is a terrifying moment described for us on purpose. And it's so easy to see why knowing this is important to bring people to Christ and motivate us to be His witnesses. You say, Brother Wally, okay, I get it all. What do we learn from this final judgment, this coming great white throne does? Here's the first thing. There's a day coming when God will bring perfect and complete justice. Listen, let's just be honest. Sometimes all of us, we look around and we let ourselves be frustrated because people we know don't know the Lord seem to be doing better than we do in life. Uh, they don't sometimes seem to have the problems we have. They, they certainly don't have the true commitment that faithfulness defines. And we look around and we say, wow, you know, they're doing what they're doing and look what I'm doing and look how well they seem to be doing and, and, and look at my difficulty. Listen, there is a day coming when God will bring perfect and complete justice. In fact, next Sunday night, Lord willing, we'll see the other side of the coin because immediately following this terrible moment for the doomed and the damned and the purging of the earth by fire is our future. And the bleakness of their future is certainly contrasted with the bright light of our future in Christ. What do we learn? Not just that there's a day coming when God will bring perfect and complete justice. Second thing, 
uh, the works of both great and small individuals are insufficient to keep them out of the lake of fire. If you've been a witness much at all, when you ask people, are you sure you go to heaven? Uh, if you die, do you know if you go to heaven? Uh, I mean, you've been told a hundred or a thousand times, well, I'm Catholic, or I do this, or I do that, or I'm Baptist. I've had Baptist people get offended that I ask them that question. You know what? Ask me that question. I'll be glad to tell you, hey, no, nah, Jesus saved me. I, I don't get people who are actually saved not glad to tell somebody how they got saved. But the works are insufficient to keep people out of the lake of fire. We are, as believers, supposed to labor for the Lord. In fact, Ephesians 2.10 says we're created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we walk in them. But no one earns heaven. Eternal life is not the reward for suffering. It is not the wages for our labors. Eternal life is the gift of God offered to every individual through Christ Jesus. And if your name is not written in the Lamb's book of life, you will be cast into the lake of fire. It won't matter in that day if you were to say, hey, I, I, I don't believe in that stuff. It won't matter. It won't matter if you had good reasons to you for rejecting the Bible or the church. Listen, I, I couldn't tell you over the years how many people have said something to me, well, I, I don't have anything to do with the church. Some pastor did this. Some deacon did that. Those people did this. Uh, uh, listen, you, you, you won't even be able to frame the courage to say something that stupid when you stand before God. If someone says something like that to me, I always say something along the lines, you know what? God's people do have a lot of imperfections. And you know what? There's a lot of things that God is not pleased with that goes on in this church. But you cannot look at Jesus and find a flaw. He's absolutely perfect. It won't matter if you were in a certain denomination. It won't matter if you're non-denominational. It won't matter if you're unaffiliated like we are here at Bible Baptist Church. It won't matter if you're rich or poor. It won't matter if you had a five-bedroom house or you live in your mother's basement and eat Cheerios all day and play on Facebook. It won't matter if you quit high school or you earned a PhD. It won't matter if you're from one people group, those some consider to be advantaged, or another people group, others consider to be oppressed. Listen, all that will matter in that day is, is your name written in the Lamb's book of life? In fact, I may, I'll ask you, is your name written in that book? I, 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 I wouldn't play. I would not mess around with my salvation. I would just get it settled. Listen, the God that loved you so much He had His only begotten Son suffer and die for you. Don't think for a moment that He hasn't made a way for you to be sure that you're saved. If you're not, you can be. Because if you wait, I, I, I've had people tell me this, well, uh, well, after I die, if I learn that you're right, uh, I'll believe in Jesus' sin. And I would say, no, you won't. Listen, this life is our opportunity to choose.
Thank God that no believer here or believer anywhere will be at this judgment. We're going to be spectators. I don't know how we will respond. I have read and had people say, well, you won't really remember people that were dear to you. I don't believe that. Um, I personally believe that we will know everybody we knew. But I think the thing that will be different and the thing that will allow us, as we'll learn, Lord willing, next week, to be in joyful peace with God in eternity is the fact that at that point, we'll look at things from God's perspective. And we will fully understand that anybody who ends up in the lake of fire, they belong there. And God, give us grace to be better prayers. Who who's unsaved is on your prayer list? If you don't have a prayer list with unsaved people, I just want to ask you, why? Why? May God give us who are saved greater appreciation of what Jesus did for us. Listen, when he was on the cross and he said these words, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? At that very moment, he suffered our eternity in the lake of fire. Thank God. And all this brings up a good question. What happens after the great white throne and the resurrection of the damned? What about us as believers? But that question will be for next week. So if you tonight would quietly stand.